From touring the icons of our national heritage in Washington, D.C., to rafting some thrilling white water in the West, we've got more of America to explore in the hour ahead today on Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. We're welcoming two return guests today back with more insights into their work and passion. Melinda Machado from the National Museum of American History tells us more about what the Smithsonian Institution does in the nation's capital. As the caretaker, we're in the forever business. She'll provide tips for what to see and insights into how they shape their exhibits of so many national treasures. At American History, we have three million objects. And river guide Hefe Aronson describes some of his favorite whitewater rivers in the western U.S. With stories about the camaraderie a river expedition builds as people of a certain age test their limits. And we'll check in with our listeners for reports on memorable adventures and tips for having fun at a bargain price all over the world. It's the Smithsonian, River Rafting, and your tips in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. From the symbols of our national heritage to the adrenaline rush of a wild western river, we're taking a closer look at the two sides of the American vacation coin today on Travel with Rick Steves. And later in the hour, we'll check in with our listeners to hear what travel tips and topics are on their minds at 877-333-RICK. There's so many ways to experience and appreciate the great outdoors in the United States, and one of the best must be immersed in nature, almost literally immersed in nature, when you're rafting or paddling or canoeing or kayaking down a great river. I'm joined by Hefe Aronson, who's a river raft guide, works for a company called Oars, O-A-R-S. Hefe, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Rick. Hefe, when you're thinking of the great rivers of the great west of the United States and Canada, what four or five rivers come to mind? I would say some of the top ones would be the Middle Fork of the Salmon River in Idaho, Mm -hmm. uh, the Rogue River in Oregon, of course, Uh, for the adrenaline junkies, the Tuolumne River, the T in uh, California near Yosemite, and of course the grandmother and granddaddy of them all, Grand Canyon, Colorado River. Okay, now when you say for the adrenaline junkies, the Tuolumne in California, why is that so exciting compared to the others? Is it just more white water? There's a, a grading scale of one to six, one being kind of like the Mississippi and six being you're crazy, don't do that, you're going to die. Um, and typically class three is what we're looking at for family trips, you know, fun, challenging, but not over the top, sort of like what you would find on the Rogue River or the Middle Fork of the Salmon or parts of the Grand Canyon. The Tuolumne is class four. That's getting right up there. And uh, it's pretty consistent and it's challenging and you're paddling your own boat and as the river dances by and has all those other qualities that we love about rivers and there's beautiful mountains and forests and waterfalls, when you're on the water, it's full on. You're definitely getting soaked all the time and you're listening to screamed commands and it's it's great. Now, it is adrenaline. I took a, a level three river in the middle fork of the Salmon River and it was it was actually scary and exhilarating and a great feeling of accomplishment and it felt dangerous. Now, I know that just from my experience, a lot of times things feel more dangerous than they are, and it's part of the thrill and everything. But, I mean, there is a risk when you get out there. Uh, How dangerous is it? Are there any statistics? How many people river raft and, and how many people die? I think I read somewhere recently where somebody compared the statistics of river rafting deaths, uh, compare something like golfing. (laughs) <laughs> oh, come on. commercial on. river trips. Is that right? No, seriously. I, I had to laugh when I saw it. But So you're saying uh, that you, the, the, the rapids can look dangerous, but really it's a freaky thing if anybody ever dies on the river. Well, you know, we're all trained in first aid and stuff, but we also have to have what Barry Lopez calls the native eye. We, we kind of have eyes in the back of our heads, and we're always watching and keeping things under control and performing triage, and, you know, it's just like... Uh, the Terminator, that you know, the thing that happens behind his eyeballs in the first one, where he's just <laughs> da, 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 da. and you don't see that. That's sort of behind the scenes, and that's kind of how we like to keep it. And if we see something coming up that might be dangerous, we're dialing it out pretty good, and nobody has to know about it. Now in Switzerland, they had a whole raft of uh, maybe that's a poor choice of words, a whole a bunch of a uh, strange coincidence of a lot of people dying in terrible Mm -hmm. adventure sports uh, accidents, canyoning and jumping and all sorts of stuff. They all got really serious about safety, and now these adrenaline sports companies are being more conservative, and uh, they've been safe ever since. Are there any differences between legitimate rafting companies and the safety of the experience 
in your experience in the United States, if you're concerned about safety, do you need to worry about which company you go with or are the legitimate companies uniformly safe? I would say uh, with the legitimate companies, you're pretty much getting what you've paid for. You're getting uh, an excellent core of guides with a lot of experience and maturity and skills, and uh, they're watching out for you, and they're really good at what they do. And uh, with the dories, for example, we have another layer on top of everything because we don't have a rubber raft that bounces off things. You know, we, we're watching out for these beautiful, graceful wooden boats, and uh, we don't want to get, as Martin Litton used to say, a hole big enough to throw a cat through. <laughs> so you, your trips are with wooden boats, not inflatables then? Right. Uh, the dories okay. are these incredibly graceful boats, and uh, they're wooden hmm. Uh, with usually fiberglass coverings, but uh, when you hit a rock uh, or you're in the wrong place, you you can crack a hole in it, and then right. it takes a couple of hours, plus the ego is rather bruised. So, you know, not to say that that's any more important than a person's life, but uh, <laughs> we're often, you <laughs> river know, we're very conservative. <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Hefe Aronson about the, the challenges and the delights and the rewards of being a, a river raft guide on the great rivers of the United States. No, you mentioned a handful of rivers, four rivers. Uh, you've got the Tuolumne, mm-hmm. which is the adrenaline rush. The other three were all mm-hmm. of a similar challenge. Middle Fork of the Salmon River in Idaho, the Rogue River in Oregon, and the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon. Colorado mm-hmm. River must be the epic experience. Uh, but how would you describe the Rogue and compare it with the Middle Fork of the Salmon for people who might be choosing between the two? The minimum age is uh, only seven years old on the Rogue, whereas it's 12 years in the Grand Canyon. So that allows more family trips. You can bring your kids, and you can often take an inflatable kayak or a paddle raft. Uh, There's all kinds of options. And the rapids are not quite as big or as consequential. So, you know, you have time to relax. And uh, there's a trail along the whole length of the river, and it's rather close. The the Rogue River you're talking about there? Uh, Yes, sir, in the Rogue River in Oregon. It's it's basically a really good place to bring a family to kind of start out if you're not really sure. Like if you don't know what's class four, what's class five, if you're in that group, then you probably want to start out on a a river like the Rogue and kind of see how just beautiful it is and how easy it is to just get along and, and make it happen. I sure am disappointed when I'm on a river and there's a long stretch of no white water. People want white water, but they do need breaks Mm -hmm. in between if they're a family. Yeah, and there are no stretches like that on the Middle Fork, as hopefully you recall on the Salmon River. Uh, It basically is moving all the time. That allows them to use those old-timey sweep boats with oars in front and back, those weird contraptions where they can't actually row against a wind. But they don't need to because the water's always moving. And on the Middle Fork, uh, I mean, the fishing is incredible. Of course, they have this incredible wildlife. I mean, they're in the largest contiguous wilderness in the lower 48, the Frank Church Wilderness Area, and you've got bears and bald eagles and elk and deer and sheep, you name it. That's really the classic wilderness trip uh, is the Middle Fork of the Salmon. And it's not so overly challenging that you couldn't take your family down. Uh, The minimum age there is nine years, for example. Who sets these minimum ages? Well, each company will have something different, but we really concentrate on the safety and we try to keep a, a gauge on when we think a child has their own personal safety in mind and they're not going to go do something that uh, that risks their life, of But course. is this age set by companies or some sort of a, a, a state? Yes, or each, each company will oh, set their own Oh, each company has their own. Age. I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you said mm-hmm. uh, these are great rivers, but your passion, your favorite is the Grand Canyon. What is it about the rafting the Grand Canyon that makes it just like the ultimate rafting experience? Oh, boy. Finding an oasis in, in the middle of the desert surrounded by thousands of foot cliffs that are just burning red with a sky of deep indigo. And and there you are, jumping into a pool with maidenhair ferns or seeing a waterfall that pours over a thousand-foot cliff from a deep, dark notch. Experiencing the desert and the heat and being able to pour water over your head and, and be comfortable and feel like you're in the middle of one of the wonders of the world. The Colorado River, the mighty Colorado, it's storied and legend. It's, there's so much to it. It's just grabbed my heart from the moment I saw it. Wow. If anybody has anything even remotely resembling a bucket list, I would think uh, the Colorado River should be on it. Oh, yes, indeed. Well, I hope I, hope I get a chance to share it with them. <laughs> Do you encounter people who are struggling with you know, their own terminal illnesses or whatever that take a river raft as sort of a great way to go out? 
Well, um, on one of our jumping mouse trips, uh, what we called the disabled trips that we pioneered in the early 90s, we had uh, several people who were going through chemotherapy, and I could relate to that because I had cancer myself and as a young man. And we had one woman who was doing chemo, and uh, she had um, not too long to live, and this was on her bucket list. We didn't used to call it that, but that's what it was. And we reached this incredibly beautiful remote beach backed up by a cliff, and you could hear the river's sound in the background just whooshing and roaring and and I heard these quiet murmurs of people talking in little groups and her helper came up to us uh, the boatmen were sitting on the on the boat in the evening sort of taking a break and uh, he told us that she had uh, asked permission of the group to die right there on the beach because she knew she was going to and she was so happy she just wanted to do it right there Wow. Well, I'll tell you, we, uh, we were up till wee hours of the morning discussing that one. I bet. Oh, yes, indeed. Well, a friend of mine wrote a song about it uh, called uh, Bright Angel, and uh, it, it really, it's what I want to have read in my, at my funeral, that's for sure. This woman ended her life in the most beautiful experience she could probably imagine, and the river's also about life itself, isn't it? Oh, well, I mean, that's what it's all about. I mean, that's what she was feeling, as the river is about life. It's just, it's one of those vacations. I mean, I don't even think of it as a vacation. I think of it as a life experience. And, you know, it's one of those things where you, you're not looking at something or you're touching something as much as you're feeling your heartbeat. Uh, we had this guy in his 80s on um, on a trip up in the Tachinchini last year, and uh, he kept, he'd, he'd just scream, Oh! And you'd kind of turn around thinking, oh, my God, he's having a heart attack. And he'd have this great broad smile on his face. And he'd go, oh, look at that. That's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I just, I, I've, I've never been anywhere like this. And then, you know, okay, Jim, thanks very much. But don't scream, you know. And then the next five minutes later, you go, oh. And you go, Jim, you okay? Oh, look at that. Oh, my God. Heffy <laughs> <laughs> Aronson, you make me want to go to some river and, and go, oh. Whoa, that's incredible. <laughs> Happy river rafting. My pleasure, Rick. It was, it was great to be here with you. This immense river waters one of the fairest portions of the globe. Nor do I believe that there is in the universe a similar extent of country. As we passed on, it seemed as if those scenes of visionary enchantment would never have an end. Meriwether Lewis. We're drying off and heading to the nation's capital to find out more about the Smithsonian Institution and the 17 free museums of art, history, science, and culture that it operates. When I visit a foreign country, I know a great way to get to know their history and culture is in that country's national museums. And of course, the same is true with the United States, where our capital hosts over a dozen top-notch museums dedicated to American history, art, culture, and science. 
the Smithsonian Institution exhibits the treasures and artifacts that tell the story of our nation. The National Museum of American History is just a few steps from the iconic castle on the National Mall, and its sister museums, like the Air and Space Museum, the Natural History Museum, the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden, National Portrait Gallery, and even the Postal Museum are scattered nearby. Joining us from the National Museum of American History right now is Melinda Machado to explain more of what the Smithsonian is all about. Melinda, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us, Rick. Uh, Tell us basically, what is the Smithsonian Institution? Certainly. We have uh, 19 different museums, 17 of which are in Washington, D.C. So for many first-time visitors, they're actually surprised. said, we're here to see the Smithsonian, uh, the Wright Flyer, the Hope Diamond, and the Ruby Slippers, and they imagine that it's all under one roof. Um, We have museums on the National Mall between the U.S. Capitol and the Washington Monument, and we have museums, and also the National Zoo is part of the Smithsonian Institution, and those are what we in D.C. say are off the mall. Off the mall. But, you know, when you think about 19 museums, you have that mall, and a lot of it is right there in a beautiful design. You can lace them together just by connecting the dots if you're a good traveler, can't you? Absolutely. And I think a lot of it is deciding what you'd like to see uh, going online and helping plan your visit that way. But we can talk about some good travel tips for your listeners. Great. Now, uh, first of all, all the museums are free. Is that right? All the museums in Washington are free. I think there's some nominal charges uh, for one in New York. Who pays for the Smithsonian? Well, our budget is partially federal. So your tax dollars do work in keeping our national heritage. And we also seek a lot of private support. So as you go through some of the museums, you will see some galleries that are named for individuals or corporations and even associations that have helped support both the exhibition and research work. But wait a minute. You mean I'm a taxpayer and some of my hard-earned dollars are going to these museums? What's the rationale? Well, this is the national heritage, and we see the Smithsonian as keepers of the national memory. Uh, Many of the things that have come to us have come through families. For example, our most treasured icon, the Star-Spangled Banner. This is the actual flag that Francis Scott Key saw when he was inspired to write the poem that became our national anthem. And that flag was in the Armistead family for almost 100 years. And when they thought about parting with the flag, they wanted it to come to the Smithsonian as the caretaker. We're in the forever business, as our director likes to say. And we honored the request of the family. They wanted that flag on view to any American who would want to come and see their flag. So even when we were doing a preservation project for that flag, we did it in the public view. We did not take the flag out of the building or off view. Wow, I love that idea, the forever business for our culture. I was being yes. a little bit silly when I was saying, you know, is it really <laughs> worth it? But um, I, I think that you must have some discussion politically these days about funding. Is, is your funding solid or is this something that um, is kind of a partisan thing? Well, every year we're part of uh, a budget review um, and the Congressional Budget Office works with Smithsonian I'm so, you know I'm not really privy to all the the back of the house accounting but certainly the Smithsonian puts together a budget and enters in discussions with the congressional budget office and the president so that our budget can be submitted. Okay. I know when I'm traveling in Europe and working on my guidebooks, some years the museums are free and some years the national museums are not free and it actually depends on which party's in power. And when the right-wing party's in power, it's more, you know, let's charge admission for this and cut taxes. And when the left-wing party's in power, it's, this is our patrimony. Let's share it with everybody, rich and poor. We'll cover it, you know, as a part of what our government offers to its people because we're in the forever business. Uh, Do you feel like the Smithsonian Institution is something that uh, is going to continue to be offering free admissions to the museums in Washington, D.C.? Yes, I think our admissions will continue to be free. Every year, um, different people come up with the idea, why don't we charge an admission or even a dollar from everybody who comes? But the belief is that these museums should be accessible to all, and that's what we strive for. That's beautiful. I think that if there is a sort of a patriotic person that's feeling generous, they can always join the institution, can't they? 
Yes, you can either become a member. We have a number of different membership programs, and that's sort of the individual support. Uh, one of them is with our Smithsonian Magazine, in which you join, you get a magazine subscription. When you do visit Washington, you get discounts on shopping. A number of our museums have an IMAX theater, and there are discounts for those tickets as well. I was doing some reading, and it was fascinating to read that there's the Harriet Tubman collection at the National Museum of African American History and Culture is actually a gift from a man named Charles Bloxon of Pennsylvania. And he said, I inherited Harriet Tubman's belongings, and for eight months I kept them with me in my bedroom. But they belong in the museum. So he actually he donated them to the museum. Now, is that a common sentiment, and is that how the museums sort of grow and, and share our culture? Uh, yes, as one of our curators said, we do depend on the on the kindness of others for many of the collections. I myself was thrilled to hear that the Tubman artifacts were coming to the National Museum of African American History and Culture. That's our newest uh, Smithsonian wow. Museum. They don't yet have a building. They're continuing to work on fundraising. They have a spot on the National Mall uh, near our museum that I represent, the National Museum of American History. And they also have a gallery in our museum. So depending when your listeners are coming to Washington, uh, but certainly for the next few years, there will be an African-American history and culture gallery at the National Museum of American History. So the Tubman collection is what we call a new acquisition. So as materials come into the museums, they're processed, we record them, we try to learn as much about them, and we have a, a big push to put as much as we can online. So I'm certain that the uh, Tubman materials will hopefully soon uh, be available online. So are there precious artifacts of uh, American culture and history that are actually people are sitting on in their homes that the Smithsonian Institute is actually aware of and eyeballing? You know, somebody's got John Brown's uh, top hat or Michael Jackson's glove or, or the ruby slippers. Sure. Uh, well, we have the ruby slippers. You got and, them. That's uh, Lincoln's good. top hat. I, I can tell you one story, and certainly our curators are always looking and working with uh, private collectors. Uh, but interestingly enough, our sports curator once had a, a cold call from a man who said, um, I have Joe Lewis's boxing gloves. He said, and I've called the National Boxing Museum. I've called, he'd called a number of museums and no one had ever called him back. Uh. <laughs> and it turns out his uncle had been a manager for Joe Lewis and they were actually Canadians. And we had a lovely event where, I mean, he drove uh, to Washington and brought Joe Lewis's gloves. And it was just a fantastic wow. story and some background material on his uh, aunt and uncle who had passed away without any children. And that's how Lewis's gloves had come to him. So a very similar story to the uh, Tubman uh, artifact. So we can stories. actually see Joe Lewis's gloves now in the Smithsonian? They just went off view recently. Um, we had had a boxing case. At American History, we have three million objects, so, so you we're constantly them around. changing. Do yes. people actually shop these things around and sort of uh, see which museum will pay the highest, or, or do they donate them to the museum because it's a patriotic act? We um, usually ask for donations. There are a few things that we're able to acquire, uh, but primarily we ask that things come to us as a donation. Are you happy to take something on an open-ended extended loan, or do they have to give it to you? We rarely take loans. I mean, we will do that if we're doing a, a special exhibition okay. where a loan is relevant. Um, sometimes people say, hey, I want to loan you this, and I, I want to do a lot of publicity about this object at the Smithsonian, and we say, please consider it as a gift. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, the publicity is, is more to enhance the value of an object that does not belong to the American I people. I see. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the Smithsonian Institution, uh, 19 different museums, nine research centers, and the National Zoo. And we're joined by Melinda Machado, who's the Director of Public Affairs for the National Museum of American History. Melinda, if you're thinking of taking your family to Washington, D.C. and exposing your kids to all of this great history and culture, what are the must-sees, would you say, on the mall, among the museums? And, and how would some parents that want their kids to have the richest experience uh, design their visit? Well, I would recommend that you visit us online. Each museum has their individual websites, and we also have si.edu, and we also have a Go Smithsonian site 
that does help you plan a visit, looking as well as lodging and, and some other options in the city. We certainly recommend that people come on Metro. There's not a lot of parking in downtown Washington. There are nearby garages, but they are expensive, and you don't want to risk parking on the street and getting a, a big pink ticket on your windshield. Oh, it'd be crazy not to just use the Metro in, in Washington, D.C., right. I think. What are the, which museum is the biggest hit? The two that vie for the number in popularity are the National Air and Space Museum and the National Museum of Natural History. Okay. Um, they receive between 7 and 9 million visitors a year. Wow. And the National Museum of American History would be third. Um, so those are definitely on the not-miss list. And those are kind of obvious for travelers. Are there uh, a couple of museums out of the 19 that you think are just sorely underrated and people should really pay more attention to those? Which ones are the uh, like the, uh, the little secrets that, that a lot of people yeah. miss and shouldn't? Absolutely. We have some jewel box museums. Uh, my personal favorite, the Freer-Sackler Museum, which explores Asian art. And so those are sort of two museums under one rubric. And inside there is a wonderful room called the Peacock Room, huh. um, where the famous painter Whistler, his friend had asked him, hey, could you just advise me on some paint colors? Um, because he already had a, a designer who had built a room around a painting of Whistler's. And when Whistler saw how the decorator had done the room, he didn't think it matched very well with his painting at all. So he sort of took it upon himself. He said, well, can I make a few changes? And um, he really made some changes. And that entire room is located within the museum. And the name of that museum again? The Freer Sackler. Freer Sackler. I think one of the marketing challenges is the name. It's just not air and space, but it's Freer <laughs> yes. Sackler. Or Asian art. Right? Asian, Asian art. That's art. a good idea. Asian art. You know, in my travels, um, I think portrait galleries are often underrated, and every country has a national portrait gallery. And I find you go there, and it's a, just a walk through a culture's past, its history. It brings it to life. It humanizes it. It's a time tunnel experience. Tell us uh, a little bit about our portrait gallery. Sure. We have the National Portrait Galleries, the Smithsonian Museum, and they share a building with the Smithsonian's American Art Museum. Uh, it's now called the Reynolds Center. It's in a fabulous building. It's the third oldest building in Washington, D.C. It hmm. was formerly what was known as the Patent Office Building. And it's just classical architecture. Abraham Lincoln's the uh, inaugural ball was held there. And just a lot of history. And how can we appreciate the actual art that's hanging on its wall? Does it resonate with you when you walk through all these portraits? It does with me. I mean, they have a Hall of Presidents, so that's one specific gallery. And they also do a lot of changing shows. And more recently, they've had an interesting contest, a portraiture contest. And then they put the winners on view. And that's hmm. been a lot of fun to go to as well. Another interesting museum for people is the American Indian Museum. I'm wondering, uh, what kind of support do you get from Indian communities across the country, and uh, what kind of challenges do you have in sharing that slice of our culture in a way that you'd like to? The National Museum of the American Indian is actually different from some of the other museums on the mall. Um, they did a lot of consultation with tribes, not just in the United States, but across all of North and South America and also other indigenous people. And when that museum opened, it was an incredible ceremony where tribes put on their regalia and there was this march down the mall. And it is the closest museum to the U.S. Capitol. So there's a huh. lot of symbolism uh, in that. And Again, for visitors, if you're looking for the best museum cafeteria, it's certainly at NMAI. It's called the Mitzatom, and they have, like, salmon cooked on a plank. You can have, I think it's bison burgers, mm. uh, wonderful soups and different kinds of salads. Okay, there's a good travel tip right there. So if you want the best cafeteria, it sounds fast, wonderful. It yes. sounds tasty. It's the American Indian Museum Cafeteria. Absolutely. All right. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Melinda Machado, who's the Director of Public Affairs for the National Museum of American History at the Smithsonian Institution. So, Melinda, 
you can I can just imagine um, you know taking kids to Washington D.C. To me, it's a great opportunity. You can just settle into one hotel, get on the metro, and you can visit all these museums for free. And your kids are going to just be turned on by the history of our our great country. And uh, it's presented in such a thoughtful and quality way by the Smithsonian Institution. What's another tip for making sure families get the most out of their visit? Sure, families should also look at each museum. Many of them have a discovery room or some type of interactive activity for children. At the National Museum of American History, we have a new fabulous edition called Spark Lab, which is our hands-on science center. It's one of the things that you should, um, if you're coming with kids, look online, check the hours, and then come early to make sure you get in. We can only handle a certain number of folks, but we've got our science docents doing experiments every half hour. A lot of the experiments that we do, they rotate in and out based on our exhibitions, but we've done some fun ones in the past, uh, for example, around the Star Spangled Banner, where you could investigate what fibers were the flag made from. You know, how do you distinguish between cotton and wool? And then we have an exhibit called Invention at Play that has a lot of hands-on looking at how play has inspired inventors or just by observing nature. So if you're a, a parent bringing your kids to Washington, D.C., in a sense, you are the tour guide for your family. And as a tour guide, I know it's very important when you go to a, a hardworking and creative museum, when you enter to look for a listing or ask if there's a listing of events going on, if there's tours being led, if there's audio guides that might help you. Tell us just a bit about these kind of extra credit ways to really make a museum more meaningful and more interactive. Is the Smithsonian into that? Yes, the Smithsonian at every museum staffs a visitor's desk. Uh, at our museum, we have both a visitor's desk and a separate welcome center. Um, and that's what they have at Air and Space, Natural History. All of the museums have wonderful volunteers that staff these desks and are ready to just help you plan the most for your visit. Once again, the website for more information on all the offerings from the Smithsonian Institution is si.edu. It's the world's largest museum complex, 19 different museums, nine research centers, and the National Zoo. Almost all of it is free. You're paying for it with your taxes. You might as well go over there and enjoy it. And all our museums are open every day except Christmas. Melinda Machado, thank you for joining us from the Smithsonian Institution for travelers who want to go to our own capital and uh, get up to date and up to speed on the history of our great culture. Thanks. Thank you. You can survey what the Smithsonian offers online at si.edu. It includes a section for planning a visit and a short tour with comic Ben Stiller. We also post links to our guests each week in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Let's open the phone now at 877-333-RICK to hear what our listeners have to share from their travels. And we'll catch up on some recent emails sent to radio at ricksteves.com. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Let's check in with a few of our listeners right now at 877-333-7425 to hear what you've been up to lately in your travels. Tell us about your adventures, offer a tip for bargain hunters, or just let us know what's on your mind about traveling wherever. Catherine from Lake Forest, Illinois, emails us, and she writes, What are your thoughts on using hostels while traveling? They seem to be proliferating and competing with what used to be budget-priced hotels. 
Well, that's true. There's 2,000 or so formal youth hostels in Europe. And by the way, they've taken the word youth out of that, so now they're just called hostels, international hosteling. And you need a card to join that organization, or you pay a little supplement every night if you want to hostel without a card. But there's way more than that, informal hostels, private hostels. Now, these are definitely proliferating. Some of them are students and co-ed and no curfew and noisy bar downstairs and people bouncing on bunks all night long. And others are much more mature and peaceful and you feel very comfortable in them. In my research, I look for the mature hostels where my readership, who's uh, not just a bunch of kids, would feel comfortable. And if you want to save money, hostels provide a wonderful opportunity to have an institutional kind of alternative to a hotel and also a beautiful circle of friends and a kitchen where you can cook for the price of groceries. So hostels can be a good value. If you're over 55, you get a discount on the membership card. So uh, there's no requirement. And as a matter of fact, if you're, if you're alive, you're young enough to hostel. Paula's on the line in Lakewood, Colorado. Hi, Paula. Well, hi. Now, you've done some hosteling, and it wasn't quite right for you, was it? Oh, no. Because <laughs> there is that reality. I didn't reality. <laughs> it until I got there, though. What happened? Well, I uh, went into London from Glastonbury. I had a friend with me for the first night, and we went in there. They said we couldn't even go up and look at the room until after 3 p.m. We were there at 11 in the morning, so we went sightseeing for the whole day in London. Came back at 9 p.m., and uh, my friend said, let's go look at the room first. And it was very dark, very hot, and it had four bunk beds, three of which were obviously taken. And uh, it just kind of smelled, too. So we went back down, and I said, you know, this really isn't working out. And thank goodness my friend from New York had that attitude, and she said, I am not staying here, and neither are you. (laughs) And I was surprised they actually had a big page that had a listing of all the local B&Bs nearby that we could choose from. And they set us up at another place basically around the block, and it was perfect. Yeah, well, you know, that hostel that you were in would have been delightful for a lot of travelers because they want strangers all over the place, and they want crazy (laughs) stuff going on at all hours, and they don't notice the smells, and they want to use somebody else's pasta in the communal kitchen, you know. But uh, I know that, uh, like you found, just around the corner was a budget alternative, and I have found these hostels regardless of what kind of hostel is, they are almost always a good resource for other budget accommodations nearby. Yeah, because I, I was surprised they had a, a really ample list of other places to choose from. And, um, you know, I just told them that it just wasn't working out. And at my age and my uh, condition of my knees, I wasn't going to be climbing up to a top bunk. Well, And uh, they had booked it for two of us, and there obviously wasn't two beds in that room. Yeah. Well, you know, it's better for you, and it's better for them and their guests if you get in the appropriate accommodation. I mean, that's... You know, I I never thought of myself as high-maintenance before, but I had the realization that I needed clean, quiet, and private. I used to take my tour groups to uh, youth hostels in the old days, and uh, it was very stressful because some hostels work and some hostels don't. And I'll tell you, in the big cities, they can be hellish experiences for people who are not vagabonds. Well, uh, and I had one set up for Paris, and when I finally got to the one in Paris, it was pretty much the same thing. Yeah. And uh, I was fortunate that I, I stuck to my guns, and the guy mm-hmm. found me a place that was a half a block away from there, and it was very nice and accommodation. It was nice. Well, there you go. Now, um, Chris from Greendale, Wisconsin, emailed us, Paula, and uh, we've got a different report here. Let me read it to you. I'm a 40-something man going to Berlin in late September on a solo trip and looking to stay in an interesting neighborhood that's also good for meeting other travelers to hang out with. I hosteled in Croatian Slovenia and met lots of nice people from all over the world. I felt a little uncomfortable at first, being the old guy by comparison, but I was treated well by everyone and felt right at home. There's something very endearing about the camaraderie of hosteling. You get instant friends and acceptance. So I think the lesson here is some hostels are welcoming for older travelers and welcoming and reasonable for people who have certain needs for privacy and cleanliness. Other hostels are definitely not. And, uh, <laughs> I agree completely. I had a friend who had been in hostels in Switzerland, and she loved it. Oh, yeah. And I really didn't have any expectations. And so when I got there and I saw it, it unfortunately, was below my expectation, yep. uh, then, you know, I realized that sometimes what they present on their website 
might look a lot different from what you see when you actually get there. Well, that's the lesson just in general for travelers. Websites can be very misleading, and I'm I'm all for people using the web for their travels, but don't be gullible. Almost everything you see on the web is going to be an advertisement. Now, my kids are, you know, they love to hostel, and the whole youth culture is assessing and uh, hostels and sharing information with these various websites. There's a website called hostelworld.com that is just the gospel for these travelers and for the hardcore hostelers. They've got their own network of communication, and they know just what they want. But those are kids looking for a $20 bed and a lot of friends to go out with after midnight. Oh, sure. Well, you know what? That's good advice to check out that website. Well, it sounds like you're a good traveler, and you know your needs, and you're just a a step and a half above the youth hostel, okay? (laughs) Yes, I am. (laughs) Okay, Paula. Thank you so much. Happy travels. Thanks for your call. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. We're checking in with our listeners on Travel with Rick Steves at 877-333-RICK and by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. And you're invited to post a short note to our radio message board or to join in dozens of topical discussions with fellow travelers in what we call our graffiti wall. It's all at ricksteves.com. Angela from Portland, Oregon. Hi, Angela. Hi, how are you doing, Rick? Great, thanks for your call. Great. Well, my husband and I um, take a trip to Europe every year, and we're in conversations about our next trip. Um, he really wants to go to Greece. I really love Eastern Europe and would love to go to Prague and either Lincoln, Poland, or Germany. What do you think about either of those itineraries, or do you, can you see one that you'd like better than the other? Mm, that's a tough one. It's like, do you feel like having Mexican food or Thai food? You know, it's uh, you can't say one's better than the other. Personally, I would say... You can't, you can't say right or wrong. I mean, you're talking about October? Yes. October, you'll have much better weather in Greece. If you're going mm-hmm. north of the Alps, October can be kind of bad weather. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were talking Germany, Czech Republic, and Poland in the north? Yes. Yeah, I love those destinations. And in the summer, man, I'd vote for Germany, uh, Czech Republic, and Poland. In October, I think I might go for Greece. And when you go to Greece, you've got to remember you've got two kinds of Greece. Of course, you've got Athens. That's the, the capital city. There's like 10 million people in Greece and 40% of them are packed into Athens. Athens has really been spiffed up lately after the Olympics and so on, so it's much better than a lot of people's memory. They've done heroic efforts to um, cut out the pollution and make the city uh, pedestrian-friendly. So Athens is, is much more enjoyable than it used to be. Still, you don't want to linger in Athens. Two or three days in Athens is fine. Uh, remember, uh, 150 years ago, it was a small town of, say, six or 8,000 people. Today, a sprawling modern metropolis of uh, 4 million I would focus on what was the city in the 19th century, and that is the Plaka. That's the area at the foot of the Acropolis, on the top of the hill, sort of a uh, religious center, the Acropolis, the city on the hill, literally. you got the Agora, that's the Greek word for market, at the foot of the Acropolis, and then you got the Plaka spilling out from there. And that was the city in 1850 or something, and that's the characteristic old Greek town where today you've got the tourist-friendly hotels, the fun restaurants, the music shows, the best shopping, and it's just the pedestrian area of, of charming old Athens that the tourists enjoy. See that, see the National Museum, and then I say get out of there. And then your choice is, do you want mainland or do you want islands? I think definitely islands. And if you want islands, uh, remember you just are going to be relying mostly on the ferries, and the ferries are a beautiful thing. Just remember that you can choose to go with the schedules, and that's choose a string of islands served by boats every day coming along, or you can go across the grain, in which case you won't have as much flexibility on your uh, ferry schedules. Do the ferries start to slow down? What time of year do they start to slow down? Is that in October? or? In my experience, when they set the clock back in the fall, that's mm-hmm. when they uh, bundle up the tourist industry and the ferry schedules become more sparse and there's less people on the beaches and less little um, guest houses open and, and you lose a lot of that ambience. So uh, you'll want to look into find out. Uh, October's kind of the changeover time. I don't know exactly when the when they, they cut back, but you're on the border. It's good from uh, avoiding crowds and sunburn point of view but you're mm-hmm. right on the edge of the uh, workable weather. Back to the other itinerary. When you say it starts to get cold, do you have any idea? Is it, you know, 50s, 60s, or is it possibly snow in October in northern Europe? Oh, in northern Europe? No, it's not snowing, but it, it's going to be shorter days, and it's going to be dreary weather up in Poland. And not not certainly, but there's a good chance of it. So you just need to make a commitment with you and your travel partner that you're going to keep doing your sightseeing regardless of the weather and dress uh, appropriately. I'm sorry, I don't think there's a clear right answer or another, but um, personally, I would vote for your itinerary more. But uh, to be honest, uh, given the time you're going, I think Greece might make more sense. Remember, you got a lot of travels in your future, so don't assume this is your last trip. This uh, is a good point. Thanks, Angela, for your call. Thank you. Bye now. 
Kathy's on the phone in Cary, North Carolina. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Rick. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. You've got a story to tell? Uh, yes, I have a 9-11 story. 9-11 happened. I was about as far from New York as it's possible to get, uh, waiting to clear customs in Tashkurgan on the Karakoram Highway, headed from China to Pakistan. You were on the China-Pakistan border going through customs when you learned about 9-11? Right. Somebody in line got a cell phone call, and the word that came down the line of people waiting was that there had been a terrorist attack in New York, and 60,000 people were dead. Wow. And we kind of looked at each other, and we said, 60,000? Surely not. We're in a little town called Tashkurgan, which is the last town in China before you get up into the mountains to cross the border. You know, no television, no radio, so we keep going. The Karakoram Highway is just spectacular, I have to say. So this is like the rooftop of the world here. The Karakoram is like the highest paved road in the world or something like that? Yeah, the the, uh, pass is actually supposed to be about the highest border in the world. It's over 15,000 feet. And you went over this in in like a bus, or how'd you get over it? Um, I was traveling with a small tour group run by a budget Australian outfit called Intrepid, and we had a minibus. And did the tour just go on after 9-11, or what did they do? We cleared the border, we cleared Pakistani immigration at Sost, and we went down to Gormit. And we still have no television, no radio, no newspapers. So you're still wondering what on earth is going on in America? Yeah, we have absolutely no idea until later that day an imaginative traveler group came up headed for China, and they had seen BBC television in Karimabad, and they told us that you know, the planes had flown into the buildings, it wasn't 60,000 people, that it was really bad. We stay in Gormit for three or four more days before we go down to Karimabad. And at that point, my tour guide is still saying that she wants to take us up to Peshawar and the Khyber Pass. And I'm thinking this sounds like a really bad idea. The best of times, you need a government permit and an armed guard to go up to the Khyber Pass. In- Full of fundamentalist madrasas, there are a lot of Afghan refugee camps, it's likely to be a staging ground for U.S. troops. I really don't think I want to go up to Peshawar at this point. And even if you've got an armed guard, I went across Khyber Pass, and uh, we had to pay a a little bribe just to guarantee our security with the tribes people who nobody controls. Right. Everybody on the bus had to kick in this security fee. What was the reaction of... I mean, you were there in northwestern Pakistan. This is Waziristan, isn't it? Oh, no, actually, I was in northeastern Pakistan, um, what used to be Kashmir, or Pakistani Kashmir. And the people there are actually Ismaili Muslims, and they are fairly relaxed. I mean, the women were veiled, but their faces weren't veiled. But did you feel that the whole Muslim world was angry at America, or did you have people in solidarity with you and supporting you as an American who had just been hit with this attack? Well, yes and no. There was some support, but I can remember standing on the main street in Karimabad talking to what was obviously one of the village elders, and he was saying, well... America brought this on herself by walking out of Afghanistan after the Soviets left and by essentially creating the Taliban. So he was not particularly sympathetic. Oh, so his take was we funded the Taliban as uh, proxy fighters for us against the Soviet Union, Mm -hmm. and now they struck us, and this wise old man in northeastern Pakistan said, well, you reap what you sow. Basically, that's what he was saying, yes. And you thought... Maybe our vacation should be winding up and we should go home early, or did you finish your vacation? I was actually, at this point, three or four weeks into a a four-and-a-half-month trip. And since I was already in Asia, and I didn't know anybody in New York, and none of my friends had lost anybody, there really didn't seem to be a lot of point in trying to fly back to the States at that point. So you and your group carried on? Well, fortunately, the Australian embassy told their nationals to get out. So we did not go up to Peshawar. We went down to Rawalpindi, and we all changed our plane tickets. I had tickets on Cathay Pacific to fly to Bangkok, and I have to say that Cathay Pacific was great. They did everything they possibly could to get the people who had tickets with them out. And after I got to Karachi, and they delayed my flight out of Karachi, there was no question. I mean, they bussed mm. us yeah. to a hotel for an overnight stay. Right. And I think I was actually on the last Cathay Pacific flight out of Karachi for some time. And after that, I had uh, reservations for a tour in Bhutan. And it really seemed to me that it would be hard to find anywhere on the planet that was actually safer than Bhutan. Well, tragic as 9-11 was, I think people who were overseas at the time have a memory of 
a lot of empathy and a lot of people taking good care of people who are far from home and scared. Yes. All right, Kathy. Well, I'm glad that there's no 9-11 stories in the last 10 years. So thank goodness for that. And happy travels. Thanks for your report. Okay, thank you. Bye now. Bye-bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. And you can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Jeffrey in Coburg, Oregon, writes us a tip about uh, using the underground in London. He says, when entering the tube in London, do not wait for the doors to close completely. When the red light turns green, touch your Oyster card to the pad, then quickly go through. Don't roll your luggage through the doors. You'll get stuck, guaranteed. Carry it or use the luggage gate on the right. All right, so uh, Jeffrey's talking about the Oyster card. He's a good traveler because he's invested in this little card. It just cost a few bucks, but boy, that gets you the discounted travel on the tube. Uh, you pay a real premium if you try to go around the Oyster card. You buy that Oyster card, then you top it up whenever you need more money in it, and then you, you swipe it to get onto the tube. And uh, you want to use that to uh, make sure the door is open and you can get through. And again, don't roll your luggage through. Carry it on or you'll get stuck. Thanks, Jeffrey. Patrick from Indian Town, Florida, emailed us and he said, My family and I actually lived overseas for 10 years, eight of them in Tunisia. Tunisian cuisine is unique in the Arab world. It's quite spicy. Tunisia gets lots of European travelers, but very few Americans. It's worth checking out. And when you're there, don't miss the Lublabi, apparently part of the cuisine there. Patrick recommending Tunisia. Joel's on the line in White Plains, New York. Hi, Joel. Thanks for your call. Hi, Mr. Steve. Yeah. So uh, I'm 24 years old, and uh, a lot of my friends have uh, no desire to ever step foot on an airplane. So as someone who might be teaching grade school soon, I was wondering uh, what I can do to push uh, my students to go out and to see the world. They're not worried about the safety? They just have no curiosity about the rest of the world? Is that the deal? Pretty much. I mean, whenever I mention yeah. uh, travel, I mean, as far as I get is, is Florida or something. Are you a teacher? Uh, I'm going to be very soon. Okay. Will you be teaching, like, middle school, high school, what? Uh, around sixth grade. Sixth grade. Well, I would inspire kids by bringing in anybody who's got stories to tell from their travel experience, whether it's national parks in the United States or venturing up into Canada or if kids have had the good fortune to go to Europe or Central America and give them the spotlight and let them show off and share because uh, it becomes cool all of a sudden and it becomes accessible. And I find that's quite inspirational for other kids. Okay, okay. And on a number of occasions, anytime one of my kids, I mean, our kids are 18 and 22 years old now, but uh, for two decades, when teachers wanted to have a special program on Southeast Asia or India or China or whatever, you know, if I had anything to share, I'd volunteer. And uh, I find parents are happy to come in and uh, get the kids excited about uh, what they might have experienced in their travels. So incorporate it into your classroom. Okay, thanks very much, Rick. Yeah, thanks for your call. Okay, thanks. Bye. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. We had help today from Sarah McCormick from Capital Public Radio in Sacramento and National Public Radio in Washington. You'll find links to our guests and for email invites from Rick to be part of our next recording sessions. It's in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And join us next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick's weekly one-hour radio program, Travel with Rick Steves, airs in more than 130 cities across the country. Help yourself to free podcasts of past shows and audio tours of Europe's greatest sites and museums in the radio section of our website. For the latest on Rick's radio and TV work, his guidebooks, and his European tours with small groups, visit ricksteves.com.